Father, we ask you to enlighten your word for us. The book of Hebrews is so rich, and we pray that we'd be able to glean everything in it, that we'd walk away and understand the difficulties that the Hebrew Christians were experiencing and how it was tough for them to turn away from ritual, from those things that they were so used to and not understanding how superior Christ is to the Old Testament covenant, the Mosaic covenant. We ask, Lord, that as we get into the application, the admonitions, that we would take them to heart, apply them to our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In chapter 12, we left off in verse 3, but I'm just going to read it from verse 1 to give it context. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and those witnesses are all the believers, the people of faith that have gone before us, they are watching us, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, as if we were in an arena. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And, of course, this is classic Paul where uh, Paul would use some type of illustration like in the games. And so if you had these cloud of witnesses at the games and you are running a race, you threw off everything that entangles you, and also you get rid of the sin that so easily hinders. The author and perfecter of our faith, verse 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we're to use him as our example, fix our eyes on him. And then verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary in losing heart. And so this idea of growing weary, why would you grow weary? What is it about the Christian walk that would cause you to become tired or to give up? This word weary is only used in this spot. The Greek word here is only used in this spot. And then you have another one in Galatians, the book of Galatians that talks about growing weary. Chapter six, verse nine of that book. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if you do not get up or give up. And so this idea of growing weary, it actually has two connotations. The one in Hebrews is you're growing weary because it is difficult. It's hard. You're running into opposition. Everything you try to do or get accomplished seems to fall by the wayside. And you throw your hands up in the air and say, I can't get anything done. I can't move forward with this. What's the deal? And the one in the book of Hebrew, or excuse me, the book of Galatians chapter six, verse nine, that one is just don't become weary as in don't just relax and pull back and say you know i'm so done i I don't want to do this anymore do not become weary and well-doing for in due season you'll reap a harvest and so many times you know i get that feeling where i am so done i i don't even want to continue and we're not supposed to we're exhorted not to do that remember i gave you the illustration of the runner at the games last week that he puts his fingers down on the line he raises up his hind end he looks forward and he keeps that mark straight ahead he's ready as soon as that gun goes off to take off and actually that's how opportunities arise they just pop up and you either go or you just go i'm so done with his running I don't want to continue on like that. Well, the exhortation is in Hebrews here to consider Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, how he endured things from these sinful men, and he said, I'm going. I'm going for the prize. And that's talked about in Philippians chapter 2, where God gave him the name that is above every name. And so he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now, going on here, verse 4, in your struggle against sin... 
And by the way, there's going to be opposition from without, from other people, and there's going to be opposition from within. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Now, what is that? Line up for the spanking? You know, this, this word that is used here, punishes, if you go back to the King James, it's scourging. Then what's scourging? That's the flagellum, the catanine tails. They would use it on your back. It would rip open your flesh and blood would come out. And you go, whoa, 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 hold on here. God's going to scourge me is what you're saying. Yes. And you go, wait, uh, what? isn't God loving and kind? Jesus, meek and mild, carries the lamb over his shoulders. Uh, you need some clarification here. I'm assuming you want some clarification here. You're not lining up like in some cult and getting beat, you know, that type of thing. The shepherd's not supposed to take out the, the rod and just whack every sheep as the sheep goes out of the doors. That's not what is really being addressed here. What is being addressed here, first in your struggle against sin, that is a struggle that comes from within. You have the struggle that comes from without, and you're supposed to consider Christ. You also have a struggle that comes from within, and it's your sin nature. Now, what are we commanded to do concerning our sin nature? We're commanded to crucify it daily. Pick up your cross daily and carry it away. If you have a cross you're carrying, where are you going? You're going to be crucified. So you're supposed to take your desires, nail them to the cross, and crucify them. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. Are we successful most of the time? No. We pull out our hands from the nails and we say, I'm getting down from here. I'm going to do what I want. I have my own ideas. And God says here, okay, if you want to do that, if you want to go and be involved in your own sin, and your attitude is that of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where you're not repentant. You've been asked to stop whatever behavior it is. You go, no, I can do this and God will forgive me. Now, you can fill in the blank on that. All these things that are considered wrong, Galatians chapter 5, also 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9. It's just, it mentions everything there. And now some of us are weak. I think we're all weak, but some of us are weaker than others in particular areas, right? Now, I'm just going to throw out a scattergun here. Some of you have an affinity for bad words. You do something and you just let it rip if nobody is around. But if somebody's around, you just bite that lip and you don't let the words cross the teeth, the line of the tongue going across the teeth. You keep it in there. and You can control it when you want to, but it feels so good to use the expletives. Now, some of you have that problem, right? Some of you have a problem with lust in your mind where you're thinking about the other person and nobody can see but you know and God says that's a sin that's within you may have a problem with motorcycles running really fast and being loud and you know that you can pull back on the throttle but you decide not to I was over here give me an example I was here yesterday afternoon and this guy I could hear him coming and he was coming all the way from the corner and of course he was driving a Ford because it had power But as the Ford came this way, he was screeching his tires and he came to this stop sign. There didn't used to be a stop sign here and there were all kinds of accidents. We petitioned them and they got the stop signed up. Well, 
as soon as he left here, he peeled out halfway down the next section. And then the last one, I could hear him. He was going even faster. He couldn't resist. He had to hit that pedal, and those tires were squealing, and he was going as fast as he could. So there are these things that plague us on the inside, and we make a choice. We say... I need to resist. I'm so weak, I can't. And when we're weak and we call out to God, he provides for us a way out. And sometimes we're able to take it and sometimes we're not. But he knows our frailty. He knows where we are. It's the person who says, I can do this and it's okay. And God will forgive me. That's the scourging. God comes along and says, all right, time for the woodshed. I'm going to give you an example. A little two-year-old, I witnessed this. A little two-year-old was getting scolded by his mother. And the mother, you know how the mother, she comes up and she has to bend down like this. And she's talking to the little one. And the two years old. And that's the age that some of the words make sense and some don't, you know, when they talk. And so, no, you know, something like that. That's how the little one's talking. And so she was scolding him for something that he had done. And he didn't want to stop. And you could see his forehead go down like this as she was talking to him. And she was explaining, now, you don't do that anymore. She turned around like this, and he's still there. Guess what he did? Comes right up and smacks her right on the rear end. That's what the two-year-old did. Now, what's your reaction to that? What do you want to do? Just turn back and laugh. Yeah. Turn back around and go, no, 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 no. Is that what you want to do? Or do you want to apply the rod of correction to the seat of understanding? Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do, right? And so when we decide on the inside that we're going to go in a particular direction, say, I'm going to do this. God will forgive me. He's a God of grace. It's okay. That's God turning around and saying, come here, mister. And he is going to... Apply the rod of discipline to the seat of understanding. That's where you get the scourging. And why does he use the word scourging here or punishment? It's because it's not pleasant. It's difficult. It's hard. We don't like it. But God uses it to build us into the people that we're supposed to be. He says again in verse 6, Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. So that's the connection here. As far as the Roman flagellum and all of that, little children, do when they get disciplined, do they think that they're beginning to die when it happens? Do they scream and run to the room and they don't want the discipline and it's not pleasant to them at all? And of course, you're trying to keep from laughing while installing the discipline sometimes, but you know, the the kids need it, and we need it as well to keep us in line for what the Lord wants. It goes on in verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. So if you're you're doing something and it becomes extremely difficult for you to carry on and you're not sure, well, God, are, are you part of this? Are you not part of this? Everything you go through that's a difficulty, that's a trial, you say, this must be the discipline of God. And so you pay attention. You turn to him during hardship, and you say, is there anything that I should be doing that I'm not doing? Is there any sin that I need to forsake? Is there any lesson that I need to hold on to? That type of thing. That's what we're supposed to do. And this is admonishing the people. This is admonition. This is also encouragement to do what is right because you must understand we will get disciplined if we are his children and we are willfully disobedient. 
He's great about that. He is our Father. He will make sure that we stay in line. Now, in the New King, King James Version, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, it says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? In other words, we are all under this if we belong to the Lord. Verse 8, If you are not disciplined or suffer hardship, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. So the individual who comes along and says, I am so blessed. I don't have any worries, no problems in the world. It has been like that my whole life. It is just wonderful. Praise the Lord and pass the money bucket. You know, whatever it is, something like that doesn't comport. That doesn't line up with Hebrews chapter 12. Everybody is going to get disciplined at one time or another. I grew up in a house of four boys. My poor mom. Four boys. All of us got disciplined. There wasn't one who escaped. We all got it. And we all got it equally. My small mom used to say, Honey, we love you all the same. And she would say that when we would get presents or we'd get disciplined. It would be the same for all of us. And that's how God treats us as well. If we are his, we will eventually come to a point where we are disciplined for our willful disobedience. Verse 9, Moreover, We all have had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Just one little thing that I noticed here. Why doesn't it say, moreover, we have human mothers who disciplined us? Now, mothers, you discipline your children, right? That's where the discipline needs to emanate from. That is the one who sets the tone That is the one who provides the direction. Even though the mother, the wife, the the ones who are the parents of the children, they work in unison. The father is the one who is to bring the discipline. And when he's not there, the mother acts in his place if necessary, especially like military families today. The mother is the one who carries that load. But it's meant to be a burden, a load carried by the father. If it's set up that way, it works very well. Now, some would say, no, it's only a comparison that there's the Father in heaven and the Father on earth. That's all it is. I think not. I think that if the Father is setting the pace and the tone for the household, things will go smooth. If the Father abrogates that, there's going to be difficulties inside the household. Now, going on. Our fathers disciplined us, verse 10, for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplined us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Now, can you think of somebody who got disciplined, who got spanked metaphorically in the Old Testament? The guy who decided to go swimming in the middle of the ocean. Remember him? Jonah. Now, he was supposed to go to Nineveh, right? He got on a boat, and which way did he head? The opposite direction. And so the boat was going to sink, and he told him, hey, it's me. God's mad at me. Throw them over the boat. What happens? Get swallowed up like a little sardine. Yeah, have you seen the Discovery Channel where the, the uh, sailfish and the tuna come in and they eat all the bait fish? He became a bait fish at that point. Got swallowed right up and God had the fish burp him up on the beach. And from that point, he went to Nineveh. You know, he got disciplined. And so God did this in the Old Testament. David also, when he took a census, he was not supposed to do that in Second Samuel chapter 24. 
And as a result, God gave him three choices in his discipline. He told him, shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land? What great choices, huh? That, that's, those are terrible choices because David was disobedient and others were affected. And by the way, that applies to us as well. If we have those sins from within, we will affect those without, those on the outside of us. We won't just affect ourselves solely. We are not an island. You've heard that phrase, no man is an island, that little axiom. Well, it is true. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so our failures, our desires, our goals, when they're denied, when God reaches in and he disciplines us and he keeps us uh, in his hand and disciplines us when we need the discipline, it will produce in us the proper behavior. And that's why we discipline our own children. And it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace on the inside. Therefore, verse 12, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. And so he's encouraging them, do this. Strengthen your feeble arms. Now, if you don't do physical labor on the outside, you probably need to go to the gym. If you don't go to the gym your arms will atrophy. They'll waste away. If you don't walk, your legs will become like sticks if you're sitting down all the time. Now, don't get the wrong idea and say, well, perfect diet, right? No, it's not the perfect diet to do something like that. You will, you will become gaunt if your diet is what it's supposed to be. And what he says here is get up, strengthen yourself, make sure that when the Lord disciplines you, you consider it as something as hardship and his hand is upon you and he's directing you in this and consider Christ who is before you, who endured the hardship from without, from sinful men and all the people of faith in chapter 11 that we went through, whether it be Gideon or Jephthah or Abraham or Rahab, all of those people that were listed in there were to take those as examples and we're to also strengthen our knees, our arms and our legs are all to be strengthened so that first we will have level paths for our feet. We can walk on like a level path. We will not stumble easily or fall over. We will be doing the will of the Lord. And also it says here so that the lame may not be disabled. What does that mean? That's kind of cryptic. What it means is that you will help others who are around you, not just yourself. And it says, but rather be healed. You will be used by God to benefit those who are around you if you strengthen your arms and strengthen your knees and consider Christ who was cursed by sinful men or or troubled by sinful men. All of that stuff that I just talked about. That's why we're supposed to do it. This is the application part. If I took you into a wood shop, you know, like in high school, you went into the wood shop and I took you over to the toolbox and the toolbox in the wood shop that I was in, it was big. It was like seven feet tall and you'd open up these big doors and there would be everything in there. There'd be chisels, there'd be screwdrivers, there'd be planers, there would every hand tool, mallets and you name it, it was right there. Now if I walked you up to that tool crib and I just said, look at all these tools, this is what each one is used for and you're just sitting on the chair and I never hand you one, you're not going to know how to use it. 
Even though I can explain it to you all day long, you're supposed to grab it in your hand. You're supposed to grab that big chisel, go over to the lathe, stick that thing in the lathe, and go up and down that piece of wood, and the chips are going to fly everywhere. You're going to get all dirty in the process, but you're going to form that wood into something that is useful. God does that to us as well, and we're to follow his example. If we strengthen ourselves, prepare ourselves, learn how to use the tools that he has given us, perfect them in our lives, people around us will be affected. They will be helped. In this particular case, the metaphor that is used is the lame. They will not be disabled, but rather healed. And this is being quoted from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or to the left, keep your foot from evil. And whenever you see quotes in the New Testament, you always want to go back and see where it is quoted from in the Old Testament and get the context of what is meant there. Now, let's just review. You're supposed to throw off the things that hinder, the sin that entangles. You're to run and not walk with perseverance. You're to fix your eyes on Jesus and consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that you will not grow weary or lose heart. You're supposed to persevere. You will have the opposition from the outside as well as from the inside. And then, verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. Now, at this particular point, there's a lot to say about being holy. And we have our own ideas of what it is to be holy. And I'm not saying us here in the church. I'm saying humankind. There are those who follow after Christ and they sequester themselves. And they live in monasteries or convents. And they pray most of the day. And they clean the convent or the monastery or they grow crops. And that's what they do. And sometimes they'll have a day of silence where they don't talk to anyone. Uh, One particular monk that I knew, he would eat bread and water for Lent. That's all he would have for Lent is bread and water. That's what he would eat and he would sacrifice and he, uh, I think I've talked to you about him before, he would be up in Colorado and they would have days and sometimes weeks where they would not talk and they would sequester themselves rather than going out into the world and make disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. Where is that located by the way? Therefore, go into the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's Matthew? Almost? 28, yes. See, I know you guys know this. You're just afraid to, what if I get it wrong? It's like, yeah, it's all right. We'll just lead you in the right direction. That's the point. We're supposed to tuck these verses in our back pocket, so to speak, or really in our minds. So we have strengthened our arms and our knees that we might bring benefit to those who are around us. We can actually go out there and do the work. And so this idea of holiness is not one where you sequester yourself from the whole world. I've talked to you before about the communities. Come move into this brand new Christian community with all these houses and it's gated and everyone there is a believer and it's going to be just fine. God never tells us to do something like that. He says go into the world, doesn't he? You know, the the more place in the world that you can be, just don't become like the world. If you can go there to reach the people, do it. But you can't do it unless you strengthen your arms and your feeble knees. That's the point of becoming a disciple. And if you do that, you will have a, a life that lends itself to holiness. Now, what is this holiness? 
Holiness would be avoiding those things which God calls sin and separating yourself apart for God's use. Now, that's also known as sanctification. But when you have separated yourself from the world, the process of sanctification, you become holy before God. And God says, I will use you. You are fit for service when you do this. That doesn't mean the person will not have imperfections. The person will be imperfect until they are with Christ. They will run into difficulty, problems in their life. We just read about that. But this idea that you have taken all the sins of the flesh and you say, I am going to attack those. Now I have a question for you, a theological question. Will you ever be 100% successful in ridding yourself of all sin in this life? What? You're kidding me, right? Oh, you're not so sure now. No, you won't. You won't get rid of it. Why? Why won't you be able to get rid of all those sins? Do you ever commit a sin? I'm going to say it like that. You ever commit a sin and you walk away and you go, stupid. You're so stupid. What what did I do that for? You're not talking about anybody else. You're talking about yourself. I'm so dumb. You know, you, you throw your head down and you're just, you want to start cursing yourself, you know, about yourself, but you know that that would be a sin on top of that. Oh, I just blew it even more, you know, at that point. That's good. That's the Holy Spirit talking, so to speak, with your spirit, letting you know that, hey, you've blown it. Now comes the grace of God because you come and you say, God, forgive me. I want to get this so right. I want to do it your way. And he goes, I can give you that help if you just turned to me before. Now, you think you might perfect it? It's not exactly going to be a perfect life. And that's God's grace. He comes in. He goes, I'm going to take care of all that. I died to save you from that type of existence. When you, are in, when you will be in heaven, you will never say to yourself, you're so stupid. What did you do that for? You'll never say that again. Why? Because when we get up there, I'm going to look at you and I'm going to say, you're perfect. And you're going to look back at me and go, you're perfect. No, you're perfect. You're going to be perfect because you're going to be like Christ. He's going to give us a life without that sinful nature. We're not even going to have that tendency to want to be drug away, right? In Home Fellowship, we talked about fasting. Uh, We're in the book of Daniel and, you know, the problems that Daniel was going through and the satraps and the astrologers and the Chaldeans, they all wanted to get him killed, you know, that type of thing. And when you fast, what is the first thing that hits your senses? The aroma of food. You can smell it from blocks away, right? If somebody's barbecuing down the street, what do you smell? Steak on the barbie. That's what you smell. You know, that type of thing. That's what takes place. And, and when it comes to the sin, the sin will do the same thing. The aroma comes along, so to speak. I'm speaking metaphorically. And you want to gravitate to that. But to be holy, you have to say, no, I will not. I will not partake. And God gives us that help. Now, for those who have done well in that, God usually use them, uses them in a fantastic way. It's amazing how he does that, but he's not limiting himself to that. He will use people like David, who is an adulterer and a murderer. It still amazes me how he used him. Or Solomon gave him all the wisdom in the world and gave himself into every fleshly desire that was ever out there. I do not understand the ways of God. 
I just know that he tells us we're supposed to live a life of holiness. We're to endeavor on that. We're running. We're not going to always win the race against others who are around us when we compare ourselves to each other, but we will finish the line. We will finish the course. Now, that is my exhortation to you, is that you get down like the runner. You put your nose straight forward. You are keeping your eyes focused on Christ. From those who are without that give you these calls that say, you can't run. You are so slow. Look at your socks. They're falling down, you know, and you're running away and you can get discouraged by that. And then on the inside, you tell yourself, I can't run fast enough. I'm not going to make it. My legs are hurting. I'm running out of breath. And you have that sin that will hinder you as well. Instead of saying, I'm going to make it. I don't care how much it hurts me. And then you're offering your body as a living sacrifice. When you run, your body starts to hurt. When you run faster, it hurts even more. When you're running so fast that you think you're going to die, you're supposed to keep on running. That's what we're being told to do here. And if you don't run like that, the coach gets on the sidelines and says, Get with it, mister! You know, and you're supposed to keep on running. That's the discipline of the Lord. He comes along and he says, Stick with it. If you don't stick with it, I'm going to make you run 20 wind sprints when it comes to the next practice. You go, Okay! You know, but we're not supposed to fall into the cloud of condemnation. Now, are you getting these two concepts? There is the discipline of the Lord that comes along from when we are disobedient. But there is also the grace of God when you are trying your best and you don't make it. The Lord says, I know, I know, I'm going to help you with this. So please separate the two in your mind. You run the race. There is the discipline for um, willful disobedience. And then there's the grace of God for those who are trying with all their might and not making it. Once that's done, God will use you and he'll use you in a big way. Now, what I'm going to do at this point is there are two people here that many of you do not know. And you might say, well, who are they? Uh, Kent and Sherry, why don't you guys come on up? This is the first hot seat. Second hot seat. You guys get this? You can turn that on. Now, am I on still? Now you might say, well, who are the Pixleys? The Pixleys are our missionaries. Now, they're not just our missionaries, but they're missionaries with other churches, specifically Skyline Wesleyan Church. And how many years did you go out ago? 21. 21 years they've been on the mission field and 21 years we've been supporting them. Now, yeah, that's great. We're able to support them. Now, it's not me, but it's all of you that offers that support. Now, where they are located is in the city of Split. You're still in Split? Split? Trogear now. Trogear. Well, they started in... Split. Split. They started... Uh, spit. Split. Whatever. They, they started in that city, and you might say, well, where is that city? Well, that city is northeast of Italy across the Adriatic Sea with Slovenia... Tell me if I get this wrong. Slovenia to the north, Yugoslavia to the east, and Bosnia-Herzegovina to the south. Is that correct? That's correct, except for there's no Yugoslavia anymore. Yeah, sure. It's Serbia, it's Serbia, Serbia, and right. Bosnia is also east of it. Yeah. So Yugoslavia was Slovenia, Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, Albania, and Macedonia at one time. You guys are really familiar with those places, right? Maybe not Albania, Kosovo. 
Exactly. It's kind of like the ends of the earth. You know, when you go out and you're doing something in a missionary fashion, I love the idea of going. When the person says, where are you going? That's perfect. When you go to someplace like that, the Lord obviously, he's working. Now, that's the discipline of the Lord. If you're not good, <laughs> your pastor sends you to Cambodia. And that's your discipline. Yeah, that's it. Now, we met. I'm going to give him some background here, and then I'm going to ask you guys some questions. Okay? Uh, we met in seminary. And uh, we were there for a few years, and I remember Kent at the time, both of us had back problems, and he would show up with this brace that he'd put around his back, and it would go around his knees, and he'd sit there in the chair like this, and he'd be taking the notes, and sometimes I'd have to lay on the carpet while the professor was speaking, and we were just kind of both suffering at the same time, and you had surgery. And I came and visited him with surgery, and then the next thing I know, they went to uh, split, and he comes back and goes, we're moving. You're what? Yeah, we're going to Bos- or we're going to Croatia. And I go, what? And I started praying about it. I go, wow, well, maybe we're supposed to help them out. So that's the background. Now, you guys have been there for 21 years, yep. and you have two kids. Tell them their names. So we have a daughter, Chelsea, who's 25, and she teaches English at Liberty Charter School in Spring Valley. And our son, Spencer, is 22, and he's married to Megan, and they live in Indiana. Indiana or India? Indiana. Indiana. So they came back to the States. Mm -hmm. Now, just to show that we have gotten our money's worth, I'd like you to say John 3.16 in Croatian, right? Is it Croatian? (laughs) Bog je tako ljubio svijet da je dal svoga jedna rođenog sina now, when, when they were going over there, you didn't speak any Croatian. No. Is that faith or what? You go over there and go, okay, I'm going to have to learn a whole new language. Now, tell everybody what you started with and where it has graduated to at this point in your missionary adventure. In the early days when we were first there, we were um, doing pantomimes and street evangelism, and we saw a lot of especially young teenagers come to Christ. We also work with drug addicts. But some of those teenagers today, they are now at the age that we were when we, were first, when we first went over there. We were a young couple with two little kids, and now those teenagers have grown up, and the first church that we planted on our own in, in Split First, we pioneered with somebody, then we planted another church and split, and that church now is led by those teenagers that we worked with. So that's really cool to watch them grow up and mature and take on that. In fact, they have a big building project right now. They're trying to find a place. I mean, it's not a big building. They would just like to have space for 80 people to meet. But they're wanting to buy a building for the first time instead of just renting, like they've been doing all this time. And so it's just exciting to see their faith and see all the things and ministries that's going on there. And then they kicked us out, and we're in a small small town now in Trogir. And uh, for several years, the, because it's a small town, very closed community, hard to break into, we had just been teaching English and getting involved in the marketplace, playing sports and different things to connect with people. And just this last year, uh, we've started to see the fruit of our efforts, and a nice little church has emerged. And uh, so we're having fun with that. 
Yeah, so when you, you go to a foreign country and you're starting with nothing, you have to get involved in the community, so you have to have a few skills. Now, you were employed as a computer tech? Computer scientist down in Puebloma, yeah. That's right, and you've used that over there, have you? Well, we had computer schools, English schools, different things that helped that employee to help them get skills that they can find jobs. Now, also, didn't you guys uh, do a house or helping the drug addicts? What specifically, you were involved in that for a little while, weren't you, if my memory serves me right? Yeah, especially in the early days, uh, I think we had over 20,000 drug addicts. Almost every fourth teenager was a drug addict when we first came there. That's just, there's just that atmosphere of hopelessness and people are turning to drugs and different things. And, uh, and even as our church, and so a lot of, in the early days, a lot of our church were drug addicts who are recovering, who are coming back from like rehab, and their families that are looking to us to help them out with that. And uh, so even now we've come into a new community and things feel a little bit better, you know, than back then. We still have some former drug addicts that we're working with, and uh, so that's always been a part of our ministry, yeah. Now, just as a side note, I'm currently talking with a gentleman by the name of Ron Brink down in Mexico, and he's involved in planting churches down there. And if you read his last newsletter, and I think it's still in the foyer there, he's dealing with the drug addicts who are down in Mexico, and there's a lot of them who are down there. Now, if you guys have questions, start thinking about your questions that you'd like to pose to them if you would have one. But I have a question for everyone that is here. How is it that you knew God wanted you to go over to Croatia. I mean, did the skies open up and God said, Kent, take your family and go to a land that I will show you. Is that how it happened? Or how did you do that? How did you know God wanted to call you? Because everybody usually has a question, well, how do I know if God wants me to do that? How did you know? Well, Sherry has more of a spiritual answer. She says, she saw it says, you go with Yugoslavia. So you go. No. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I get it. No, for me, she, before she would marry me, I had to promise that if God would ever call us into missions, that I'd be willing to go. So I said yes, knowing that she's an only child and spoiled and she'd never leave Southern California. <laughs> and uh, so, no, I never imagined, even when we were studying together, I was trying to imagine where God would use me in ministry, and I couldn't leave San Diego County. I'd hear about <laughs> opportunities in Modesto or some strange you know, place. I couldn't do that to my family. But, uh, no, I think our, our pastor asked us to pray. They were, uh, we're as Skyline, we're trying to figure out where we're supposed to be, you know, working in the world. And uh, the wall was coming down in Eastern Europe. And there was new opportunities to go there and bring the gospel as they're coming out of communism. And so they asked us to pray about it. I thought, there's no harm in praying, but now I know there is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, God was working in our hearts and was just impressing on that this is what he wanted us to do. I went over there in 1992 when it was still very hostile and difficult, and I just felt the power and pleasure and presence of God like no other time in my life. And God used that to, to just affirm me and say, this is the adventure I'm taking you on. Now, if you had to, I'm sure there's lots of stories, but if you had to point to the one where you were most discouraged Things had come about in such a way where you're just going, God, do you really want me here? Uh, can you describe at least one of those instances and how you worked through it? Uh, wow. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, especially in the early days, we didn't know. We were so naive. We had no idea what we got ourselves into. And we prepared with a bunch of people. There was supposed to be a team of like 10 or 12 of us going to go over there from San Diego. And everybody bowed out except for us in the end. And so our team was this couple that we work with over there. They're a wonderful couple. But the fellow, you know, that I worked with, he, um, he was uh, like became some kind of dictator over time. I mean, he was, he was changing. And we had all kinds of conflict in those early years. And uh, I feel like we bring people to church, and then he'd chase them out. And, and um, so at one time, I just like, Lord, was that really your calling? Did you really ask us, you know, to come here? Or is this all my imagination and foolishness? And have I just given up a great career, you know, for nothing, just to waste our lives and, and finances, everything? And I remember just sitting on a, on a hill uh, near where we lived and just talking and pouring out my heart to God. I'm crying and just feeling God kind of reach down from heaven and wrap his arms around me and, and just affirm me and say, you know, you're right where I want you. Just be faithful, kind of like you're saying, you know, today. Be steadfast and continue, and uh, I will do my work. And uh, there are a lot of times like that. But An application to this, uh, when we went out as well, there's a lot of people that came out with us, and all of them left. And so at that point, like Kent, we were saying, did you really call us, Lord? Is this really what you want? So I think the Lord does that, where if you decide you want to be used by the Lord and you think you're going to do it with people because they're safety in numbers, kind of like a school of fish, but you're a bait fish, remember that? You are going to be tested in that. And, you mu- and Chuck Smith used to say, in order for God to use you, you have to be broken. And so he is going to have you go through a process where you break and the only person you can turn to is God, and he's going to get you all alone. So that, that's really encouraging to me. I go like, wow, we're not the only ones that go through that stuff. You know, everyone goes through that to some degree. Now, do you guys have any questions of either Sherry or Kent? Anyone? Yes. Okay. Creations throughout their history have this... Catholic identity, so they would say with statistics that some 95%, 98% are Catholic. Um, but in reality, they've come out of 50 years of communism, you know, where they said there's no God. And so you have people with a religious identity, uh, but they are practically agnostics. They live like there's no God. They, li- they're, they live like a very secular, you know, part of our culture. And um, so they would, might call themselves Christians, but if you try to ask them what you believe or where is God in your life, for them, there's no God in their life. He's very distant if he exists at all. And there's no hope if you were to die today or, you know, there's no hope about the future. It's, it's very depressing to go to a funeral because people just feel like that's a, they're devastated, you know, by death. There's no sense of hope that there's any sort of assurance that you'll be with God and live forever. Anyone else have a question? Yeah, John. What's that? Yes, we do. I mean, it's great every time we come back, but to be honest, 
after we're here for a while, I miss, miss being over there. I miss the conveniences and the luxuries and, you know, so many things about the United States. But I think God has just so gripped our hearts with the people and a vision to reach the people there that that's where our, our hearts go back to. Final question. Anyone? Yes. Um, Croatia is shaped like a moon. So if you look at it uh, within, like a crescent moon, you know, because it, it represents the Turkish or Ottoman Empire came and Croatians were actually the people, they were the front lines that kept the Ottoman Empire from coming into Western Europe and all of Europe becoming Muslim or Islamic uh, continent. And so the Pope at that time gave them a Croatian king <clears throat> and that's why they're a nation you know, today, or that's why they have that, that identity. So that's why that sense of being Catholic is so deep in their, their identity. We have some, we have a small um, population of Muslims in Croatia. In Bosnia, uh, maybe over a third of the population right next door to us is Muslim. And those are blonde-haired, blue-eyed Muslims that will probably eat pork when no one's looking because they basically became Muslims. They're they are Slavic people, just like the um, Serbs and the Croatians. They're Slavic, they speak the same language, but they took on the uh, Muslim identity at the time. So that's part of my answer is that we have, you know, in fact, we have communities within Bosnia that are, that are you know, there's camps where there's, um, you know, probably terrorist camps where they're training people for, for terror. So we have those kind of issues just over the border from us. But, um, uh, but, but even the, the issues that we have in bringing the gospel are very similar to, to missionaries who are going to Islamic countries. Because in many of our Islamic countries, they're also very secular in their mindset, but they're very strong in their identity. I'm a Muslim. I can't be anything that would be to deny my family or whatever. So we have that same sort of attitude, that except for they just call themselves Catholics. You know, it's that there's no sense of faith in their life, but they, they're not open to changing their identity. So that's one of the challenges we have, that there's people, I think, that are hungry for God, but they fear giving up their identity of who they are. And so we're trying to help them to just, okay, keep your Catholic identity, but become a pursuer of God. Let's get in the scripture and, let, and we just allow God to, to change and work in their lives and, and, and change their identity. Okay, what we're going to do right now, I'm just going to pray for Kent and Sherry and ask that the Lord continue to bless them over there. I wanted to put them before you to see who it is that, you know, we support. And we, if we have Basilio up here, we're going to have him come forward. And we just want to make sure you know who is who and what your money, your tithes and offerings are going for. And uh, let's go ahead and pray right now. Father, I want to lift up to you Kent and Sherry and the work that they are doing and been faithful in for so many years. I ask that you would bless them even more, that you would widen the stakes on their tent, that you would have them be uh, or become even more of an influence to those who they meet and they greet over there in a country so far away. And pray that... Um, their wisdom would just be multiplied as they seek to reach the people who are so unwilling to lose their identity. I pray that you would soften the hearts of the people there, uh, protect this family as they are over there, and along with Spencer and Chelsea, Lord, the years that they have spent overseas, 
I pray that you'd bless them over here and give them a heart as well uh, for the lost around the world. We thank you for their faithfulness. We thank you for bringing them here safely and give them, uh, giving them a time of rest. But we ask that you would renew them while they are here and allow them to go back and be even more fruitful. So may your hand be upon them and your wisdom fill their hearts in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen.